Hello, this is episode 373 of the Purple Psychology Podcast. I'm Nisha. So I've taken a bit of a break from the podcast. I usually end up doing something quite exposing around my birthday. I think this podcast will be the usual friend. And I think it may be a wrap-up to this season as well. The subscription podcasts haven't really been working out for me either. I do like to park work in places so that it has a chance to be kind of integrated before I put it out mainstream. And I'm probably going to continue to do that on my Patreon. But I'll record a podcast later on about that process and about some of the things I've discovered in terms of Hosting the Authentic Expression Club. I feel that this is a wrap-up to this season because I have a big sort of podcast series brewing in me. I've been sort of looking to label, I suppose, find a, a reason why I see fundamental patterns across the board that are starting to feel very disjointed. And I think postmodernism might be the root cause. So there's a, that's one of the reasons as well that, that I had taken a step back because I've just been processing a lot around that. The energy at the moment is exceptionally intense and I often find that when that is taking place that I am often go through energy about two weeks before everybody else. I think some of the reason for that is so that I can experience it and then kind of stand in sort of the eye of the tornado while everyone else spins past and sort of catch them and, and sort of explain the process that's taking place. But there's a big theme from four years ago and I've kind of, I've been sensing this now for, for a couple of weeks and I don't really see a reason why there's a four-year pattern as such. But a lot of what I'm going to talk about here and a lot of the ways that I've been feeling and a lot of the, the patterns or the struggles or things I felt four years ago, particularly from sort of May to September 2019. And ironically, at the time, I wrote a piece after a family funeral called The Light Givers, which... I entered for a fellowship and it ended up being a really inappropriately run fellowship which really sparked a lot off in me at the time and we just had another quite significant family funeral two weeks ago as well. So there's probably a sense that it has brought me back to that time in that way too. But there's a lot in the energy at the moment and there's a lot of experiences that I've had in the last couple of weeks that have really reminded me of that time. And it's funny when people talk about connecting back to their ancestors. I really sort of always feel that my ancestors are blue with antenna. I actually really wish that emojis as standard came in blue so I could just use blue with a little antenna on the top of them. And I was reminded of this, um, there's going to be, there's a lot of books on my desk, so I'm going to try and pause while I rustle through books. 
but I may not remember to do that each time. But I was reminded of this piece that I, I read in um, Stephen Fry's book, Mythos, where he sort of reimagines the Greek legends. It's a fantastic book. It's particularly fantastic as an audiobook. And basically, Zeus is a god got bored. Like, he got bored with how perfect the godlike world was, and he decided that he wanted kind of humans to sort of play with. And he had Poseidon make humans, basically. This is the retelling of the story right, by Stephen Fry. And so Poseidon went to this river, and he, he created a whole series of, of figures and people that Zeus would then put a power into. He brought his daughter Athena back. And Zeus was so, so excited, like, you know, he, he, he arrived back at sunset and sort of stamped through the growth. And it's really funny because... Um, you know, he, he manages in his sort of haste to crush some of the figures. And Poseidon's like, you know, you know, he, he'd made all sorts of people. So Poseidon had made it made a whole host of people. And there was little green, violet, and blue creatures. He was like, those were my favorite. And Zeus has managed to stamp on all of the cobalt blue ones that were his favorite people. And I'm always really reminded of that story, like the, the retelling of it by Stephen Fry. It's a bit like all the blue people got stamped on, and so they didn't get to be created by Zeus. That's how I often feel. And so I'm, I'm going to come out with like a statement here, because this is, is a lot of how... I've really been feeling and how I really feel very unmatched in the world right now. If we created by a black soul and lived by a brown principle and treated the land with the respect of any indigenous culture, the world would be more lovable. And so I'm going to talk about those different aspects for me. Because I'm kind of, I'm sick of being misunderstood. And I'm sick of the shallowness of the world. And I'm sick of sitting in the gap. Junith broke my heart a little bit and hasn't quite fully healed. And there's, there's so many things that have been said to me in recent times that are so much in the gap and so much not within the principles and the energy of my soul. That is a little bit like four years ago where I'd been writing for a while and I knew my writing was hugely impactful. I was kind of hitting my head off a wall, which I still am a little bit, but I have a greater acceptance of that now. And I entered for this fellowship and I, I suppose I put a lot of my hopes in it. And then it turned out that it was really unprofessional and really elitist and really badly sort of, it just felt really disjointed. It felt like I had sent energy out and I described it at the time that it was like it was sort of hit something and sort of shattered into small little pieces. And there was kind of shards of glass that flew back. It's what it often feels like to send out a pure signal of energy into the world. And when you 
share so much and the people around you don't seem to match it and they don't seem to even realize their their self-absorption and their self-centeredness and they think that they're being so caring to the people in their immediate world but then they very obviously don't care about anyone that's just even sort of slightly tangential to them and that gap and that disconnect each time ends up just being really painful for me to listen to and there have been lots of different little scenarios where that has happened and I remember this time four years ago where my parents kind of knew that I was very upset and they, you know they, they, they really didn't didn't get it because they're kind of like you know, you're, you're so talented and there's so many things you could do in the world. Why did you have to pick something so difficult? And they're just saying that from a place of love. Where they just want you to pick something easier. And something where you're not endlessly hurt. And where you don't always feel like you're speaking Spanish. And you don't always feel like you're searching for the people to match you. And so all of this, as, as, I, as I digest that statement and I start to, to prize it apart, I have no doubts that I will piss all sorts of people off. But I don't really care. <laughs> In the sense that if it challenges, and it challenges people to really think about what they're doing, I don't mind doing that. And yes, I often land it into a space so that it can be it can be integrated and so the energy can sort of slowly build in a way. And then sometimes I just feel that the world is is so unraveling that maybe it's time to just do it in a way that's, that's jarring. And so I was reminded of this, this image. It's from David Attenborough's um, biography. And there's this really funny image in it, this really funny story. And I couldn't remember the location where it happened, so of course I pulled the book off the shelf. I remember the David Attenborough in the film Kiru had to take all of their European clothes off and put on these little loincloths in order to be allowed to film in this village, that they, they were hugely distrusting of white European clothing. And there was no way that they would allow them to film unless they basically took everything off. And so it's this hilarious photo where you've got these really comfortable black people in their traditional loincloths. And you've got these really pasty British people looking in incredibly uncomfortable. And they're not as well toned either. And they've, they've lost all of their kind of camouflage to be in the world. And they've had to, to join a place of such vulnerability as white people to be allowed to film in this village. And having pulled a book out, it's, it took place in the Solomon Islands which I think is somewhat ironic now 
that I know more about the Solomon Islands and that I've had more exposure through projects there to understand the communities and to understand there are communities there that managed to keep Christianity out and to keep their integral heritage and their culture alive. And it's just, it's just such a fantastic image and it's such a fantastic story in terms of David Attenborough's desire to show the planet and to show the truth of the planet and to have filmed so much of it and to present it back to, to humanity that he's willing to make himself that vulnerable. But it, it shows us the stark contrast between whiteness and blackness. And it shows us what whiteness hides behind. And I went on this big journey to, to try to explain the place of creation in terms of a black soul or a black energy to the authentic expression club. And I since started reading a book. It's ironic. The the I'm I'm not gonna say what the book is because I never say what things are when I when I criticize them. But the person questioning the black writers The questions seem really ignorant. The questions seem really white. They seem that place of judgment and observation and distance that I talk about in whiteness. And I was kind of like, why is this like this? And I had started to dip into the interviews of the people that I, that I wanted to read and what they were saying, like the likes of Gwendolyn Brooks and Tony Morrison. And one of my pet peeves is black people who want to be white. And this person's context is trying so hard to be established in an academic way that they are moving in an academic whiteness. And it's so striking when I go back and I read the introduction to this book, that this person is trying so hard to prove themselves and to be taken seriously in their academic context, that they've traded a part of their soul. And I'm not going to say who it is because I don't hold them responsible for that. I hold whiteness responsible for it. I hold it as a product of our society and our way of measuring people and having them lose themselves in order to fit in and to become what is perceived as successful. And all of the writers in different ways say the same thing, which is that they are writing a lived experience. They are creating an experience that is gifted forward. And there are a handful of white people that I admire that are capable of doing this. And I, ironically, when I was 
looking for footage and looking for case studies for the Expression Club. Hit on a number of people and one of the clips that I showed that was one of my one of my favourite was a clip of David Bowie creating the soundtrack for the labyrinth. And he was talking about the fact that he wanted to make it really emotional, the underworld in the labyrinth with the goblin. He wanted it to be really emotional. And he said there's nothing more emotional than gospel music. But he didn't try as a white person to emulate gospel music. He brought black people into this studio for them to shine in gospel music. And when he wanted a blues guitar rift, he brought a black blues guitar artist into the studio. And it's, it's such a beautiful clip to watch because he's encouraging the gospel choir to sing the line five times for you to really repeat it. He's encouraging the guitar player to really take a moment and really own it and really do his rift. And there is this shining that takes place. And that's so rare. It's so rare for white people to truly value that creation space. And they've sought it out and they've craved it. And they've understood that it has a deeper impact. And I watched the same with Laron Cohen in his film Hallelujah. I watched him create bonds for life and go back to work with the same artist. And for him to step aside, and even when they're backing Bosculus, for them to have their moment and for them to shine. And those are that that's what matters. It, it matters in understanding that place of creation. It's not about trying to take it over. But one of my great pet peeves of education is that so much of that is being lost. So much stock is being put in having a position or a status that that's lost. And in the same way, I'm going to read some sections. I feel that if we, if we took our principles and our value from a brown energy, which I do, I keep going back to it again and again, whether it's the people such as Rumi that are the foundations of Islam, or it's Cahil Gabon, which I'm going to try and read a bit of in a second, who takes his origins from a whole host of backgrounds. Or if it's me looking to Buddhism, or if it's me thinking about the notes that I wrote in October 2021 on a series of Hindi principles, on the fact that it's, it's so important for me to honor other people's work, to honor where your ideas are coming from. It's so 
important to keep learning, to not feel like you know it all. That everything begins and ends in energy for me. That the cleanness of how you hold people or host spaces or care for others or the support that you offer them. Because the book that I spent considerable time working my way through has been all about the needs, particularly the needs of women to have the masculine outside themselves and the lack of cleanness in that. But there are so many people throughout the world, so many brown people who are simply killed for having differing values, differing principles from each other. And I think those values are very subtle. The energy that I'm talking about, in the same way as it's so subtle to understand the difference in a creative process, to understand that it's a lived process. In the same way these values are often very silent. So this is a piece from Cahill Gabon. The greatest truths that are above nature do not pass from one human being to another by means of ordinary human speech. Rather, they choose silence as the path between souls. One of the books that I'm inclined to give new parents is The Prophet by Kilgabron. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. Another passage from The Prophet. The teacher who walks in the shadows of the temple among his followers gives not his wisdom, but rather his faith and his lovingness. And he talks about speaking. You talk when you cease to be at peace with your thoughts. I spend an incredible amount of time being quiet. Many of the people that I admire talk about creation as being almost a, a divine download. Leonard Cohen jokes, you know, if I knew where songs came from, I'd go there more often. And so, of course, like, I've been working my way through writing a quartet of books, and they're in a series of four because they're all interwoven and overlapping. They're all what I care most about within myself. They're all that separates me from the world. It's all that was hurting me four years ago. It's all that is still playing out for me. It's the awareness of the conditioning and the compartments and the pain. It's, it's those things, those pet peeves I have. And as I move towards collecting a lot of material for the third book, one of my pet peeves is that 
every indigenous community in the world, regardless of continent, has so many vices. They have so many vices to stifle the pain of the disconnect they have within the, the systems, those worldly systems, those conditions within the world. And one of the fascinations that I've had for a while is that there's another series of people that seem so alien in this conversation that have been speaking to me. There's a series of white men who were academic, European, from countries that have been so involved in wars from a time period. And they're not all one religion, they're not all Christian or all Jewish. And I'm like, what are the similarities in these men? Like, what, why does Jung speak to me? Victory Franklin, Albert Camus. And recently, I came across a fourth person, Herman Hesse, and he said, I live in my dreams. That's what you sense. Other people live in dreams, but not in their own dreams. That's the difference. And that really speaks to me. And I was like, what is different about these men? Why are these men that are so introverted? They, they lack many of the, the qualities that I have seen in others. They're, they're not as expressive. They're not wearing their heart in their sleeve. They've come from countries that have so persecuted the other people that so speak to me. And what is different is that they were all involved in World War I or World War II in a very different context to other men at that time. They were all unable to fight and they ended up acting as doctors or medics or in a support role or some sort of divergent space such as Albert Camus was in the French resistance. And so they have seen the impacts of those wars in a very different way to other white men of that time. They didn't kill people but they saw the the impacts of that pain firsthand. And so I'm very curious as I start to hear the stories traveling out of the Ukraine, as I start to hear the men that don't want to fight, or I start to read the news stories of the medics that have treated 11,000 soldiers in just one hospital with horrific in injuries. And, and I'm wondering, what will come out of that time? Will there be a different type of male signature that will speak to us in the future? Because from what I have seen in the world, it's often very few people of very different personalities that tend to be in very small demographics and small percentages of those personalities that move in a different way 
but have a great impact in doing that, in staying in their truth and their zone very quietly. And that's, you know, why four years ago when I was so upset and sort of rocking in a corner and my, my parents were like, you could do anything else, is why I have persevered in doing what I'm doing. Because nothing else would feel truthful to my personality. And I'm just hoping that in another four years' time, there will be even more people in my world with that truth. There are more now than there was four years ago. But I won't pretend to not be still struggling with some of the people. It's been a very difficult few weeks for me. But I'm further on than I was four years ago. And I, I see my truth in greater and greater clarity. And I couldn't possibly give up on it. No matter how many times I feel like I whack my antenna off the wall. Like I had a, a meeting, one, one of the many meetings I've had in the last number of weeks that have really upset me. I had a meeting with an American corporation and they described people as peaking. I was just so agitated. And, and I, 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 I responded back to it and pushed back against it. You cannot describe people as peaking. They are not happy with what you perceive them to have peaked to. They don't feel like they have achieved their potential. And so I will always keep pushing back at those comments. They, they amplify for me the whiteness, the, the world that doesn't crave creativity created from a living space or pits the values of brown people off each other, not recognizing that they all have such origins in their energy signal. And they still have yet to figure out the sheer pain and genocide signal that they have left within indigenous communities everywhere throughout the world. And it doesn't matter how many policies or procedures or box-ticking exercises you do in any of these white corporations. You have not embraced any of the energy or the signatures of the world in any way to move with beauty. And I left academia because I felt like a failed scientist because I couldn't remain in that environment. And now I'm quite chuffed that I felt a failure, that I couldn't measure to what was required. 